All right, Jay, new question. What was your clinical win or your clinical fail of the week? All right, man, I guess I guess got two for you. I got, or I have both. So to start with the fail, uh, I had a patient who, who I've been seeing for longer than I want to be more so. Cause like, I'm like, man, I feel like I should be doing, you know, more with you. And, and, um, and I haven't been focusing enough on her quad strength. Cause I think that's, that's probably what she really needs now after reflecting. And, uh, she kind of lumbers around. She's very stiff when she walks and, uh, she's not using her quad at all. And, and, you know, I kind of, kind of pushed her in her last session and she came back and she was like, yeah, I was, I was pretty flared up, you know, kind of swelled up a little bit. And, and so I was like, okay, all right, we'll definitely push you a little too much. So let's dial it back. And, and then I, you know, I just started off with some shorter quads and then got the NMES out and did some kind of what I'm doing now is I'm kind of having them lie diagonal on the bed with their knee off. So they're like in zero degrees hip flexion. Okay. And just so that I don't take up, so I don't shorten the quad too much by having them like in a seated position right uh, at the hip. Um, so I try to like do a better job of the muscle length tension relationship. Of the mm-hmm. quad. So how to do that. And I just left it there and I'm going to see her tomorrow and um, see what happens there for that one. As far as a win, I think I'm getting better at identifying my patients who cannot handle more than like three or four exercises at home because mm-hmm. they're, they're coming back and like, oh, yeah, I'm doing okay. And like, they're not kind of come, coming back with the, with the responses I, I want for them. Yeah. Like, all right. Maybe this person and their personality, they can only handle like one or two exercises and that's it. And um, so I think that's kind of my win or at least growth. <laughs> I like that. So yeah, what about you, man? Um, clinical. I'll start with clinical win, I guess. Um, similar to you, I think it's obviously finding that line of like what what patients will do because if you can give them ten things that are the most optimal and they don't do any of it because it's too overwhelming, it's you're gonna get nothing out of it. So yeah, that's definitely the challenge. I think I've been good about stressing the physical activity guidelines with pretty much all of my initial evals. I read a paper recently about like how many huh. PTs actually do that. I'd be like you need to get 150 minutes of light to moderate aerobic exercise every week. And yeah. here's how you can do it. You know? So like it was a really appalling number. It was like less than 10% of PTs are actually like doing that with patients. So I kind of made it like a, a point to do that with all of my new evals this last week. And, and then I had one uh, scoliosis patient lady and she was really thankful. Cause I, I broke it down, not just by like do 150 minutes this week. Good luck. Mm-hmm. It was like, I told her do, 10 minutes of walking after breakfast, lunch, and dinner, five days a week. So it was just like the 30 minutes a day, mm-hmm. for five days. And she's like, oh yeah, I was able to stick to that. It was like a very good um, structured kind of thing. Just, I, I figured every time I eat, go walk for 10 minutes. And I actually do that myself. Yeah. My, da- my dad calls it, he went to Italy like three or four years ago. Uh-huh. And all the Italians are always walking after meals. So he calls it an Italian walk. <laughs> and so I said that to the patient and she's like, I'm Italian. Like, oh, this is great. Like, I didn't know this is a thing. So, so she was all stoked. She got like, I got so much buy-in from her for just like this one suggestion of like doing 10 minutes of walking after every meal. And she's like, oh, this is great. So I got all my exercise in. So I think, I think finding yeah. that, that like in with the patient, it just happened to be that she was Italian. And that's, <laughs> that was the connection there, but um, getting better at, yeah, getting better at you know, delineating those exercise guidelines and resistance training as well as in there. So that's a a huge win. Mm -hmm. Man, that's great. 
That was good. Um, my clinical fail of the week was with a clavicle ORIF surgery, mm -hmm. post-surgical patient. I think he had surgery on the 13th of April. Mm -hmm. So we got all his post-op report initially. It didn't have it in there, but we had the timeline of like the protocol mm -hmm. that the surgeon was going off of. So he, he hasn't been seen for almost a month? He no, he so. came in like two weeks post op. He was okay. supposed to wait two weeks and then go into outpatient. And so he waited two weeks. I evaled him on the 26th. And then he's a very type A, like um, works in tech. He's like an entrepreneur kind of guy. Mm -hmm. And so I was giving him like, you know, body on arm, passive stuff. Mm -hmm. And then he did okay. And then the second time I saw him, I gave him, I gave him wand exercises, like wand flexion, external rotation, abduction, all that. Mm -hmm. and i guess technically in his his protocol he's still only passive yeah and i didn't know i thought wands i thought wand exercises were passive but i guess it's technically active assisted so mm -hmm. he emails me because we have like an email with my company at elevate and it's like oh i feel like every time i'm doing this stuff my shoulder's clicking and like my range is decreasing i feel like he's like like freaking out about this yeah. whole thing yeah, yeah. and my uh, my supervisor sees it and she's like oh, okay like well what all is he doing in his program and and i was like yeah so we've been doing whatever the passive stuff on the table and then i was like oh yeah and wand stuff too and she's like you gave him wand stuff like no he can't be doing that so uh -huh, um, uh -huh. she was all freaking out and i was like i i totally thought wands was passive but apparently it's active assisted so he was probably he was probably lifting his arm way more than he should have and uh kind of got a regression and pain and inflammation and stuff. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That was one I was like, oh, and this guy, he would probably overdo it. That's just his personality. He's a cyclist. He fell off his bike and he's trying uh -huh. to get back to, he's trying to get back to high level stuff. So, um, yeah. I guess just like going back over yeah, protocol stuff and, and not, not going too far too fast. So that was one, you know, fail of going too fast and overdoing it, I guess, with one stuff, but that was one. Yeah, well, you know, you'll never do that again for another ORIF, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> so, that's how you know. <laughs> that's how you know. And you so, know, like I, I agree, like it, it can be passive yeah. for the right person, though, right? Yeah. Like, if they truly the way, understand, the way I explained it was just the the left is going for a ride; it's not doing anything. But mm -hmm. but and he he was out of the sling in like a week because he was getting numbness of like mm. around his ulnar distribution kind of thing or his last two fingers mm -hmm. and so the surgeon told him to dc the sling and so he hasn't been in a sling so he's just throughout his day he's probably loading it way more than he should just because that's unfortunate oh, yeah so i'm like yeah. this guy's probably already doing a lot because he's not following the sling protocol yeah so it was probably just too much but yeah living you learn so that was good that's okay yeah take a step back and yeah. press the restart button <laughs> press the restart all right, Jay, we are about to bring another 2-5 research episode to the listeners. You ready to bounce into this? Oh, yeah. Welcome to 2-5 Physios, the podcast where Tyler Smith and Jordan Spradlin, two doctors of physical therapy, discuss their journey towards financial independence, self-development, PT research articles, and host in-depth interviews with physios in the field. And welcome back. You're listening to another 2-5 solo episode with me and Jay here. We're going to be talking about ACL research. The, uh, the title of this paper is a 10-task-based progression 
and rehabilitation after ACL reconstruction from post-surgery to return to play, a clinical commentary. And the authors are Matthew Buckthorpe, Antonio Tamasari, and Francesco Della Via. And this is out of the International Journal of Sports Physical Therapy. It's open access, and this is published in August of 2020. So again, this is kind of a, I guess, a change in course from the typical um, PT protocol after ACL, which is a lot of times, I would say, time-based. Would you agree with that, Jordan? Yeah, I mean, quite a few of the protocols I get is pretty much time-based and mm -hmm. pure PT worth your weight. You know, you don't really take that at face value. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like we're for a long time just been last on the idea of like return to sport in six months and return to mm -hmm. running in three months you know just without any objective way of knowing if the patient's ready for that or not so right. and looking at outcomes after acl re-rupture it's pretty pretty terrible so this whole paper the point of it is to provide that evidence-based 10 task qualification to then eventually return to sport so it's more of a criterion-based selection rather than time-based selection I think could be very useful for clinicians. So we'll break into this. We'll kind of go over maybe a little bit of the background and then kind of through those 10 stages. So when you're with your patient next, you can kind of make sure that you're testing these things before getting them back out onto the field and have a little bit more confidence in your assessment and everything there. So anything in the background you thought was useful, Jordan? I, I mean, I highlighted a couple of things here that we can talk about or we can jump straight into it but. yeah dive, dive us in the background yeah so a couple interesting things that i highlighted here right in the background of purpose was peers acl injury results from altered movement bilaterally when compared to pre-injury movement quality so again kind of stressing that there's not just you know emphasis only on the injured structure but you've got to look at and especially when it comes to re-tearing it's a very high incidence of the contralateral limb being torn, the ACL. So mm -hmm. whether that's due to movement impairment and quality or overloading because of the nature of the injured side, I feel like focusing bilaterally as well can be very important. And then basic background, they talk about load management as well in terms of when you are doing these things and, and getting them back into tasks, you got to think about peak loading, volume load, and the rate of loading. Do you want to talk about any of those, Jordan? Yeah. So um, I think what's great is just like, you know, you consider load, but the different types of load. So like, as far as like volume, like it's like, you know, the repetitions multiplied by the amount of weight or something like that. I think if you look to your strength and conditioning books and things like that, you can kind of calculate the total volume loaded over that and see and see how they are, see how they're progressing with that. Also at the rate, you know, as far as, if it's a slow, slow load, um, like high slow load for weight compared to you doing this for four second repetition, or it's quick and um, a slow, like a lower intensity mm -hmm. at that point. So you can always alternate those things depending on where they're at and how they and how they actually respond to um, to all of that. Because you have your load, but then you don't. If you do overload them, just like what we talked about in the beginning of our episode, all right, if I overload my patient, they kind of responded with a little bit of swelling or too much increased muscle soreness. How can I think about modifying that, bringing them back? Or if they're not responding enough, how do I progress them in that sense? Absolutely. Yeah. So they have peak loading. The definition of that was peak ground reaction force. The volume of load was like Jordan said, load times the repetition. And the rate of load was the time over which it's delivered. So 
more of the plyometric and how quick they're doing something. So that's all important because um, for strength, the neuromuscular system is what's, you know, the active shock, shock absorption to the muscles around the joint. So if you're not getting adequate strength out of those structures, then it's going to be more demand on the ligaments, tendons, and joint itself. So that's kind of something we're always thinking about is increasing the patient's active load capacity and not just relying on the injury site and the joint itself, which kind of increased depending on what graft type it was, but obviously anterior knee pain with bone, patellar bone, tendon, and then quad tendon as well, reconstruction. So thinking about those things. Yeah. Something I like that they put in there was like an example of like loading the ACL tissue specifically. Mm-hmm. They, they pulled a paper from Laughlin at all where they looked at women jumping from a 30 centimeter height, just like a drop down jump from a single leg. Mm-hmm. And they found kind of the load, the peak load was about 0.7% of their body mass, right? which they equated to about 440 newtons of force, where in other studies they found to like completely rupture the ACL is a, takes approximately about 1300 newtons in female ACLs. Um, so just keeping that peak load in mind, like, all right, if you do that drop down from 30 centimeter high, like, if, especially if you're not in that in that stage of that six to eight week um, maturation phase of the ACL, you're probably not introducing too high of peak load forces there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, and I, they don't really say, I think what in that, that example that you just talked about, I think that's mm-hmm. in healthy controls. And so mm-hmm. they're kind of saying, obviously that 440 newtons is clearly below the 1300 newton threshold, but obviously poor biomechanics can contribute to basically a higher force through that knee as well. So thinking about not just what the absolute is, but um, how that changes with more increased knee adduction or femoral internal rotation, that kind of thing. So I'm right, assuming right. poor landing mechanics would increase the, uh, the, the threshold for getting closer to that 1300, but it yeah. sounds like that was in a healthy cohort of, of what it was, but hard to say. So movement quality definitely still matters. And then what do you, the what are the four things that the paper says we should be monitoring throughout our task-based progressions of exercise jordan you have that as you're going through these tasks with your patients if you decide to because um i'm happy to talk about some limitations that i saw in this paper but we'll say that's all the end but (laughs) when you are monitoring any acl athlete or even even any any patient that you're working with at all i think these are great guidelines so the first one that they have is just the patient's response to exercise. That's pretty bare bones. That's something you got to look for as far as, is it pain-free? And as far as like, do they have increased swelling after the activities or the next session that they come in? As far as like just palpation and for the tissues themselves, you want to just ask them their response to the exercise. Usually you can have your objective and subjective measures, but also Second thing that you want to look at is their movement quality during the task, something that I've just alluded to when you're, if you, if you take that drop down uh, single leg stance, you don't want to just look in the sagittal plane only. If you're looking in the frontal transverse plane, looking at rotational or greater knee abduction moments, you want to look at all of those things and take those into account to see if they have proper motor control to perform the task at hand. You also want to look at strength and quite a few ways to measure that, whether that be body weight, leg press, or handheld dynamometer, anything along those times, and then just asking muscle soreness response. So that's something you're looking for as far as 24 hours after, are you okay with that? 48 hours, they're coming in four days, muscle soreness, 
you definitely overdid it. Mm -hmm. So those are all things, response to exercise, movement quality during the task, strength and muscle soreness, as far as you want to monitor how your patient is doing when making their way through the 10 different tasks. And then real quick on the monitoring, it says mm -hmm. um, progression to task is allowed only when there is no pain or swelling as identified by the stroke test. Mm -hmm. the, the stroke test just literally like going um, like proximal on the anterior knee and then seeing how much I forget. I'm trying to yeah, remember. Yeah. The <laughs> I was going to look it up and then I forgot to do it before the podcast. So this looks you great. Just, you got to, you just got to stroke the knee, you know, how are you how doing much? and asking how it's doing. <laughs> I, I got to look this up. No, I, no, like like, I vaguely remember, but it's just to look for like a fusion, like how much it bounces around. And there's yeah, grades, so right? Essentially what I've, the way I've learned it is you're stroking essentially the medial aspect or like the vastus medialis into, okay. the, into the femoral tibial joint. And as you come across, if you see like a, because as you depress the skin tissue and whether or not mm -hmm. there's swelling or not in there, there's going to be a rebound. And if there is a rebound, and I guess you can have grades, then that could be a positive stroke test. Okay. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Because I've always just measured the fusion with tape measure, you know, around the kneecap, but yeah, never, that's probably I've never done the stroke test better and you know, cause not as subjective. Yeah. Yeah. I'll do both. I'll start stroke knees <laughs> all this week. <laughs> Walk up to every patient. I'm going to stroke their knee. Just go for it. <laughs> all right. I learned this new, this new thing to try. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I think that's a good enough intro. Let's jump right into these 10 milestones of things we need to be doing. First of all, do you have any current ACLR patients that you're working with at the clinic right now with SC? I do. I only have, well, yes, I have one who was my own. I've seen him from the start. He's yeah. six months out, but he is a revision. So uh, okay. the, the surgeon um, asked me to hold off on running for now, yeah. even though wow. I've, I've done handheld, uh, handheld dynamometer yeah. testing and he's about 94% strength symmetry compared Damn. to his contralateral leg That's even good. though even though i know like his contralateral leg it's been six months right so it's yeah. not like and he hasn't been loading that leg like how he normally would so that leg's gonna be weaker as it is right right so but even still you know he meets that criteria and i'm like well shoot you're 94 percent. i'm ready to get you running and mm -hmm. and trying other other drills but um surgeon still wants to hold off for him since it's his second acl surgery too so what's the patient's yeah. sport background uh, soccer primarily. Um, he currently is just okay with getting back to running though. Like he's okay. just happy with that. He's not even trying to get back to soccer. So. All right. You got the one I have one that I see through the home visits. Um, he's mm -hmm. post-op about, I guess he got it on April 7th. I guess they always say you should never date your podcast, but this is coming out like May 15th or so. So he's about like six weeks post up uh, bone patellar tendon graft and then mm -hmm. another one i'm kind of taking over in the clinic at elevate who is probably 11 weeks out mm -hmm. and um so he's getting he theoretically is getting close um and we've been doing bfr or the other pt has been doing bfr with him nice fairly fairly early on so mm -hmm. um i've been seeing some of that with the delphi and so i'm assuming he might be a little bit close i haven't done any of the objective measures of strength and all that mm -hmm. um to see kind of how I mean, obviously implement this kind of after, but yeah, so I kind of two in the works I'm, I'm thinking about here. So I'll talk about the first one. The first of the 10 progressions is to restore normal walking gait. So this first one is 
necessary without any kind of external aids like crutches, bracing, all of that. So I know the, the biggest things to get normal gait would be full knee extension, range of motion, and you're going to also need no extension lag. So when they're performing a single leg raise, you're kind of looking at that tibia to see if it's staying into any kind of flexion with active um, elevation of the knee. I don't know if there's real grades of that, but I, I think you're just kind of looking yes, no. Is that happening or not? Is kind of how I judge it. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you could, you know, you could throw a goni on there. It's a okay. couple degrees. It's a couple degrees. <laughs> I'll just eye goni it. I always eye goni everything. Um, I know. It's the best way. <laughs> so you got to be, yeah, you got to make sure I, my patient has a meniscus as well. So he's not really weight bearing until like three to four weeks, I want to say. Mm. So he's, he's been using crutches. He's been out of the brace, but he's been using crutches under the arms kind of now down to one crutch, but he doesn't have any extension lags. So that's good. He's got within like a degree of knee extension bilaterally. So mm. he's getting, he's getting pretty close to walking without anything. I think I'll, maybe this week I'll, I'll see what it feels like on him. But those are the, the biggest things I'm seeing. So you're looking for control of effusion. So that would be less than one centimeter difference at the patella or pain and then no quadriceps lag. So pain, effusion, and no extensor lag for the straight leg raise before you can get them out walking without crutches or anything like that. Anything else you look for in the, the walking gait stage, Jordan? Yeah, um, definitely knee extension is big. I mean, my top mm -hmm. two, like my top two things for these, these patients is I want their quad turning on as much and as often as possible mm -hmm. and getting that full range of motion knee extension. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's big. Those are my two things uh, for that, and especially pain-free when they're walking, avoiding any other compensations they might adapt because of the crutches. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Nice. And then two, go for it. Yeah, two. All right. So if if they kind of meet all that criteria, then it's like, all right, we can move on over to a bilateral squat as far as the second task. And because normally they, they refer to some other articles that show that even patients 12 months post-op after the surgery can show some poor functional outcomes, especially, especially with loading, if they have asymmetrical loading. So something you want to look for with the bilateral squat is symmetrical loading. And you want to be able to look at that, you know, visually and just subjectively from your clinical expertise. But if you could do that objectively, I think that would be better because, um, there's a couple other articles that I've uh, read as far as there's a, the author's name is Chan, uh, uh, published in 2019, in which the title is Loading Behaviors Do Not Match Loading Abilities in Post-ACLR. This was conducted at USC. And what they did is they took about 20 patients compared to 20 controls who were post-ACLR uh, three months. And they were pretty sneaky in their approach because they pretty much just had us a chair that was allowed them to bend their knees to 90 degrees. And they essentially just wanted to look at the loading symmetry between each leg. And what they did to assess them in their sit to stand and stand, they essentially, they pulled a quick one on them. They're like, Hey, can you stand up? We need to calibrate the system. Even though they didn't, they were like already recording data the whole time, but they were just like, Hey, can you stand up real quick? Just to, you know, let us calibrate, stand there mm -hmm. for 10 seconds. And when they did that, there was a very significant limb discrepancy as far as they were weight bearing far more through the unaffected leg okay. than their affected leg. Um, and that's with, that's with all standing and squatting too, when it was just natural. 
when they instructed them and provided them cues on how to do things, mm -hmm. they they did really well at normalizing the ratio between their limb symmetry index, which was good. And so it just kind of shows like, all right, feedback mm -hmm. is really important for these patients, especially three months later. Also, another article by Chan in 2020, actually by Chan and Dr. Sigward, titled Center of Pressure Predicts Intralimb Compensatory Patterns That Shift Demands Away from the Knee Extensors During Squatting. Essentially, what Chan and Sigurd found in this 2020 article is the center of pressure on patients' feet when they do a double leg squat really determines kind of where they're using their force. So they found that for individuals with post-ACLR, this was four to five months out, they tend to, for the limb that was the surgical limb, they tend to put their pressure more towards their toes, mm. which then creates a greater moment arm for the hip axis and the, and the, and the ankle axis. So they tend to use more of the hip and the plantar yeah. flexors to accomplish the task. Then they do the quad itself. And so um, what they found with the controls is they had more of a midfoot center of pressure, which used more of a balanced quad to hip plantar mm -hmm. flexor ratio, but subjectively and just visually they looked good. So they looked good. But in the limb itself, based on force, okay. force plates, they were using more of the hip and the plantar flexors instead of the quad. And it's too hard to tell just visually. So that's something to consider. And that's something I would have liked to see for this second task, as right. far as if there was more of an objective measure other than just looking, yeah. you know, yeah. so, but I, I think it's, I think it's still great. And this is something you want to look at. So I guess my advice to you guys out there would be, if you do have them do this and you don't have force place have them bring their center of pressure more to midfoot, which will allow more of a load on the quad and the mm. knee axis in, in, in general. That would be more beneficial, midfoot. I think. Yeah. Okay. I like that. That's a good, it's a good takeaway. There's also a good progression they have here of, of getting to the bilateral squat would be uh, starting with the wall squat, then going mm -hmm. to a goblet squat, back squat, front squat, and then overhead squat, um, initially targeting like lower knee flexion angles because peak loading would be around I guess 90 degrees and below yeah, and then, chain. Uh, yeah. And closed chain at least exactly good catch. So kind of starting there and then working around that. So good point. Yep. Third task would be a unilateral foundational exercise, the single leg squat. So again, this is a highly important exercise to be competent in because so much of our next steps like running would be obviously single leg dominant exercise. So they advise having a leg press that's nearly 100% of body weight to tolerate during the single leg squat at this stage. So uh, also interesting is that the split squat would have about 60% of body weight on the front limb and 40% on the back limb. So those are kind of the, one of the suggestions of getting to the, the single leg full squat would be a split squat, reverse lunge, walking lunge, step up, and then to the full on single leg squat. So that's kind of their, the progression they outlined in this paper, but I don't have a, I don't have a leg press machine at elevate mm. the closest thing I have is a reformer. So I guess I would just have to do, I guess I could still do like, yeah, the split squat, reverse lunge, all that stuff. And then when I do and kind of get them towards a single leg squat, just load them up with like a dumbbell. But yeah, that's kind of the single leg squat progression they have there. That's number three. Anything else on that one? Yeah, no, I like the, I like the progression. Yeah. Quad to the reverse lunge and then walking lunge. I, I, I really like that. That's something I've kind of started to already right. adapt, you know, without really looking into it. It's like, ah, oh, this seems about right. 
makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah. And then, then, then the next one following the single leg is we're going into bilateral landing from like a jumping or jump down, like we referred to earlier. And the reason we're moving from single leg to this is these landing bilaterally usually can be around one and a half to two times your body mass when you do these type of activities. Mm -hmm. And so we're asking a lot more of the neuromuscular system to absorb and distribute these forces instead of the ligaments and the bones and the tendons. Mm -hmm. And typically prior to initiating these bilateral landing tasks on the ground, what they suggest is having the athlete attain at least one times body mass, single leg um, squat, or two times body mass on a double leg squat on the leg press. That's their recommendations for this. I would still like to see more, more objective measures because even, even with a leg press, like, I don't know, maybe they're getting more glute um, from that. So I would really like to see some objective measures for the quad itself. And but it is great because then it does prepare for eccentric loading required for running and speed and jumping and, and agility drills from there. And some progressions and variations that they talk about for the bilateral landing is you can do this vertical or horizontal. So I'm assuming like they have you jump off from a side angle. I'm not, I'm not really sure what they meant by the horizontal aspect there. Um, I don't know. You got any insight on that one? At the, at the, at the last sentence of the bilateral, they say they talk about these could be vertical, horizontal, or even rotational. So I'm not sure if they mean as you jump off and you land bilaterally, yeah. potentially, depending on where they're at. That's why I would like something yeah. more objective as far as a quad extensor um, force production. Because if I am having them doing a horizontal jump off of a right off of a box, I want them to have good strength and control there. But yeah, and then you can use different surfaces such mm-hmm. as um, such as trampoline or mat or um, even an air expat, something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And then after that, we're getting into running. All right, running, running, running. So this is the kind of big milestone for all ACLR patients that they, that they want to get back to doing. I think I've seen studies on anywhere from 8 to 16 weeks, with 12 being the highest incidence of time-based progression to running is what most clinicians are doing. So that's kind of what's out there currently. Important things to consider while running is that each step taken represents weight acceptance of around two to three times body mass. So the targets for this in the paper are that we want to get them up to a treadmill running at eight kilometers an hour, which is roughly five miles per hour. And so the required strength for running should be about 125% of body mass in a single limb leg press or squat or an isometric knee extension greater than 70% of the um, involved side. So 70% LSI. And then range of motion should be greater than 130 degrees of knee flexion uh, because you need at least, I think it's about 40 degrees of knee flexion during running. So obviously you're going to start them on a treadmill if if at all possible before you get them to uh, outdoor running. And if you can have them running like in a pool or alter G if they have that as well. Some some clinics do have alter Gs. And then this should be also pain-free, ideally pain-free symmetrical gait. At near maximal sprint speed should be the aim of gait retraining, but that may only occur kind of at the end of uh, rehabilitation. And many things won't fully normalize for about a year after ACLR. So kind of being um, cognizant of that as well, that the first time they get on the treadmill, the first time they run outdoors, they're going to be all excited. They're going to look like Bambi and it's just going to look terrible. Probably (laughs) be the most awkward running you've ever seen, but they're probably going to have a giant smile on their face. So that's right. It's important for those reasons, but 
yeah, you definitely want to be checking out their single leg press or uh, isokinetic strength before you get them out to running. So don't have any patients running yet. I have two, like I talked about, one's about six weeks and one's close to 11. So maybe starting with the second one, but don't have anyone currently in this stage. So mm-hmm. yeah, do, you know, <laughs> do you know when um, like it's ideal to get people back in the pool? Because my first patient's about six weeks and his, his uh, suture is just fully healed up. So I'm wondering if you have any guidance on when typically they get back into the pool and doing stuff. Do you have any idea on that, Jordan? Yeah, for me, I would... As long as the incision is fully healed, right? I, I think I think they're good to go. Do some stuff in there. Yeah, yeah. the dude has a pool, so it's like the home visit kind of thing. So I show up and he's got the pool and everything. So I might do. He's got a uh, Peloton as well. So this dude's got money. It's pretty good. So <laughs> pool and Peloton, <laughs> pool and Peloton life. So maybe I'll get him in the pool this week. We'll see. Probably yeah. not gonna be doing running in the pool, but we'll we'll just see. You know, just standing, weight bearing, and doing some balance or something, but. Yeah, so that's the number five. That's that's about halfway through um, the progression here. So getting up to the higher higher order tasks here, but that's always exciting stuff. Getting them back to running. Yeah, and um, the next one on the list as people are progressing. Now we're getting into a little bit more higher intensity, higher loads um, and volume loads for shorter amounts of time. Uh, so your peak. Uh, to go back to our earlier when we're when we're talking about we're moving into plyometrics so our peak loading is increasing with double leg plyometrics what they report is about two to six times per body weight Um, the volume load is going to be less so with plyometrics you don't want to do too many of these you want to be um, Mm -hmm. low as well as the volume load Um, and the rate of loading is is quick as well so for this just to go over quick plyometrics it essentially is activating the short, the stretch shortening cycle, where you go into a quick eccentric muscle stretch, which is quickly followed by a concentric contraction of the same muscle. So if you think of your DTRs, when you're performing your neuro screen, you're hitting that muscular tendon's junction, that's stimulating the muscle spindles, which sends that information up from the 1AA pharynx to the spinal cord, it's coming back and it's going to contract and shorten. So you're, you're, you're eliciting that with your plyos. And Uh, It's really important to start off with double leg, uh, usually from the bilateral drop jump for these individuals in this task and specifically. And what I liked that they touched on was the control of the dynamic knee valgus, like what you're talking about earlier, Tyler, has been shown to be associated with ACL injury and re-injury, as we know. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's really important to keep this in mind for those adduction moments to be really mindful as they do these especially as they fatigue with something along these lines, um, it's going to be important to consider, but this is a great way to get them back into more high intensity um, activities before they get more into sports specific. And so the kind of the requirements for that would be obviously full knee flexion, full range of motion there, greater than 80% of limb symmetry index with the knee extension and 125% body mass, single limb leg press or squat, kind of the higher, obviously, further we go, the higher the necessity of strength and and, uh, range of motion requirements. So number seven is the unilateral jump and landing. Uh, So the task would be a single limb deceleration from forward and lateral running. And this would require greater than 80% limb symmetry index with isokinetic knee extension or 150% body mass, single limb leg press and full range of motion as well. So this is kind of the 
yeah, the deceleration activities. So a lot of ACL injuries occur during deceleration and landing. So obviously practicing this as best you can in the clinic before you get out there and do it is huge. You can also, like Jordan said, you can start on um, kind of a more pliant surface, like a mat, trampoline or sand before you get them up to harder surfaces because of the increased demand on the knee for unilateral and bilateral plyometrics. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. very key. Yeah. So that was just, that was just the unilateral jumping and landing. And, mm -hmm. and I know they refer to it. So the next task, number eight is unilateral plyometrics. So mm -hmm. a single leg drop jump where you drop down from say 30 centimeters of a step and then, mm -hmm. and then quick eccentric load, and then you can actually jumping. But in the task seven, they say, you know, greater than 80% limb symmetry index of the mm -hmm. isokinetic knee extensor, which I feel like I'm, I'm a little critical here because they have people running at greater than 70, right? even though when we know with running, it's like two to three times your body weight on a single leg there. Mm, true. And I would feel more comfortable having them closer to 80, 85%, even before getting them running. So mm. I think what I would add is I would add in that kind of criteria into level five of the tasks so higher up yeah i would yeah i, I definitely would um just in case you know since you're uh, since you're taking on two to three times your body weight on a single leg as it is i want that quad to be nice and strong mm -hmm. um, to adapt to those stresses so yeah quick tangent on the um on that but yeah same thing just jumping off of tyler's unilateral jumping we're just going into plyometrics now we're just doing single leg and and that's that's pretty yeah. much what i got for that one <laughs> yeah no there's not much else. Same <laughs> there's thing, not much <laughs> two to six times body mass um yeah that's it's everything is necessary from task seven to task eight so all that stays the same same full yeah. range of motion all that kind of self-explanatory there now number, it gets fun now it gets fun number nine is a pre-planned multi-directional movement so let's say a 90 degree cut maneuver um, you're still going to need everything from uh, task seven, which is greater than 80% LSI or 150% body mass, single limb, leg press or squat and full range of motion. So yeah, like Jordan said, now we're kind of getting into some of the return to sport stuff. So this is all going to be having cones out. You're going to have the, it's probably better to, to start with something less than 90 degrees and then working towards 90, I guess 90 would be the, the cutoff for moving to step 10, but let's say set up cones, 45 degrees, and then you're going to have them run up to the cone plant and uh, jump off to like a 45 degree angle, slowly working the higher angles up to 90, which is be obviously straight laterally from the cone. So this is going to be huge for, I mean, most sports where there's going to be some necessity of changing direction, agility, that kind of thing. So getting back up to, to the cutting, but starting with lower angles and then working up to higher as, as the patient gets more comfortable with it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, I think that's great. And that's like definitely where you want to go is those kind of controlled sort of situations before you get into the final task, which is the sports specific movements and having move, movement control under sports specific change of direction. So, so this is where you should have hopefully a good understanding of whatever sport they are trying to return to and being able to adapt and be creative with how you'll challenge them in these settings. It's great because in, in the article, they have a paper where they have a soccer player outside and and they're working on the field which is awesome yeah. most of us probably aren't gonna have that ability um but you can still do that in the clinic depending on what, what you can work with or take it outside i've taken a patient out 
side with his volleyball. And I was like, all right, show me what you're doing. Let's practice this and, mm-hmm. and go for it. And, um, and it was pretty great to have him do that. Took some video feedback too, but with this specifically, it's, it's great. I think what there's a few options you have is where you can still kind of bring that controlled setting into this by having a more predictive setting. So you're like, okay, you're going to run, you can run to this cone and then cut 45 degrees this way or 90 degrees this way. And then you can have more of a reactive setting where, um, whether that be a visual cue, auditory cue, or tactile cue, you can, as soon as they feel that or hear a word or, or see a certain card that you might flash at them, then they'll have to either go left or right or at an angle or stop and cut backwards. Um, you can be super creative with all this sport specific movements, um, which will really challenge them and get them to the next level and back to where they need to be. I think another good thing that they mentioned is that the evidence suggests that external focus of attention with movement training results in superior attention of tasks. So again, that's, that's um, less of like bend your knees and focusing on like internal cues. And just like, if they have a band around their knees, try to put tension through the band or imagine sitting back in a chair, like those kind of, those kind of cues when you're either coaching a squat or coaching some kind of movement, just to focus as much as you can on some line on the turf or some kind of external cue that they can see just because mm-hmm. that's going to lead to better retention of the task initially. So I think mm-hmm. focusing, I think a lot of the research is coming out about, I mean, you could do both, but, but more emphasis on the external cue. I mean, I love this picture because the PT has one of those exercise physio balls. Yeah. Perturbation <laughs> <laughs> training. <laughs> it reminds me of those, like those, those soccer matches where people are in like blow up. Yes. You know what I'm about? What are those called? I don't know what those oh, are called, but. That should be an Olympic sport. Tokyo yeah. 2021. Yeah. It's like Bubble Boy. You Bubble know, with Jake, Boy. Yeah. Jake Gyllenhaal, I think that was it. <laughs> I would absolutely pay to see that in the World Cup one year. Yeah. Man, that would be cool. But that was the 10. So that was good that you talked about the limitations too, because I mean, obviously you're the the FAMP OCS, so you could probably do a much better paper than these these chumps. But not, uh, even, not even close. But just to add on the limitations, um, yeah, this, this is a clinical commentary, so I would like to have seen it correlated, or like uh-huh. if it was a perspective study, like okay, let's see how this works in actual ACL patients. Right, that would be great. Um, or even like a criterion validity, if we can put it up against some of the other measures that we currently use, whether that be. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do like how they incorporated the um, knee extensor isometric strengthening into right. this, which 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 was really great. I do like how they do it. I kind of would like to add a couple things, but or you know, if it was something that they can compare it to or actually get patients to use this, I think I would like to see that next. Is this format used with actual return to sport patients? Absolutely, that'd be cool to do. Yeah, an RCT of like following this progression versus following a time progression. I mean, I guess we the cat's probably out of the bag on that. It's probably probably better to do something like this, but to have actual numbers of like retail rates following certain protocols based on mm-hmm, whatever mm-hmm. it is and see which one's better. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That'd be that'd be an awesome step forward. But yeah, I think it's just trying to encapsulate what's out there and trying to get a bunch of PTs on the same track of let's let's start with these 10 and just try to work our way through these before we we get people back out there and uh, making sure we're safe with that. Yeah. And I, I, what I really liked is they really did just get away from time, like as far as like time mm-hmm. dependent measures, um, especially from a patient perspective, because they're going to ask you like, Hey, am I, am I on the right track for where I'm at? And um, this and that. And, and uh, if you can get them away from 
oh, it's been six months and I'm not running yet. It's like, oh, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, this is where you're at. So. Time is relative, bro. Yeah. Interstellar <laughs> taught me that. Einstein, special relativity. Time is an illusion, bro. It doesn't exist. Yeah. Doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> Your ACL is fine. Just go squat. Yeah. Um, other things I learned is I need a leg press machine or a biodex in my clinic to actually assess this but yeah. um i'm just gonna have to do it with like double leg or single leg squatting with a back you know with a barbell or something mm-hmm. at whatever percent body weight just to see i guess i could do that because we do have barbells and everything so i'll just have to do that kind of modify it best i can um don't have all the fancy equipment like you have at usc but <laughs> we <laughs> don't have that fancy equipment i think the handheld dynamometer is probably from the 80s that's, that's <laughs> what it looks like i love it gosh man we need to update these things for 2021 it'll be on our phone one day promise i there's gonna be an app for it yep (laughs) one day all right there i'll again reiterate this is an open access journal i think the main author is matthew buckthorpe and francisco de la via a 10 task based progression and rehabilitation after acl reconstruction from post-surgery to return to play a clinical commentary and that is in the International Journal of Sports Physical Therapy. We'll post the link on our website. And what is our website, Jordan? Where can they find us? 25physios.com. That's 2fiphysios.com. All right. And we'll be handing out, if you give us a, a shout on info at 25physios, we'll be handing out uh, Trader Joe's gift cards like it's our <laughs> job. And uh, <laughs> Look forward to getting so, that. Yeah. yeah what, so what's the update? We we talked to Jackie and oh, she responded. Um, she responded through text message. Um, she she just wants um a good beer when the whole class meets up. Okay. In San Diego, we can yeah. do that. We uh-huh. can do that easily. She's getting two. You're going right. You're going on the 27th. Yeah, I'll okay. be there. I, I won't be there for graduation, but I'll be there after. Okay. Like that, yeah. Cool. Awesome, man. All right. Well, no one else in this podcast cares about us. So let's let's probably <laughs> let's probably wrap that up before it goes too far. <laughs> but thanks for listening, y'all. Check us out and uh put this rehabilitation guideline into practice this week and let us know mm-hmm. how it goes. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Two Five Physios podcast, where we bring the fire mindset to the physio lifestyle. <laughs>